All righty. Here we go. Um, so we're continuing on uh, in our study of Second Samuel. We're in the middle of David, uh, David's kingdom. He has, uh, in the past few weeks, made some you know, grievous miscalculations. We could put it to put it generously. He's uh, he sinned greatly against the Lord, and because of his sin against the Lord, he has um, he has incurred a lot of punishment that results from that. We looked a couple weeks ago at a broad overview of Second uh, Samuel thirteen to twenty, which is sort of a, a massive section of this sort of downfall, if you will, of David's kingdom, um, and then. Uh, we're now taking it week by week. We're kind of going through big sections, chapter by chapter, if you will, of um, of what happens specifically as a result of many of David's missteps. And we saw last week one of the uh, you know sins that came upon his kingdom was that Amnon, his oldest son, who was heir to the throne, uh, fell in love, so to speak with his half-sister Tamar. She, we saw, you know, she was beautiful and she was one of David's other wives' daughters and Amnon uh, fell in love with her or really desired her, if you, if you will. That's probably a better way of putting it. And he and his cousin Jonadab uh, acted together and they, they sort of uh, were co-conspirators in the, in the whole deal. But Jonadab gave him some insight into how he might be able to uh, act on his lusts. And so he, as part of this charade that he put on, he pretended to be sick. And when David asked him, you know, what was wrong? What could he do for him? He asked for David to send Tamar, his half-sister, to attend to him. And of course, she comes in and attends to him and he propositions her she denies him, and when she denies him, he forces himself upon her and rapes her. And this leads to uh, this is this sort of begins the the um, a series of events that end up in a really tragic outcome for David's family. Um, as we saw in there's there's a lot of connections that the writer is demonstrating throughout that whole scene or that whole that whole picture. There's obviously some, the, the male characters that show up in chapter 13 that are, are being portrayed in a really deficient way. Um, first of all, we have Amnon who exercises passion without love. We have Jonadab who exercises wisdom without principle. And it's portrayed in the text as craftiness because he's got a lot of insight and a lot of wisdom into the way people respond and how to get, basically how to get what he wants but he has no principle to ground that in. And, and so it ends up being a, a crafty situation that, that allows his cousin to rape his other cousin, which is obviously a terrible way of using, you know, insight. Um, David, then we see, has anger towards Amnon for what he's done, but he, and though he has every right to pursue Amnon and put him to death, he doesn't do it. And then we have Absalom who comes along and he exercises hatred without restraint. So he, um, he lashes out at Amnon. He brings Amnon in. And after two years of silence, 
and he has kind of held on to this for some time. He and Tamar are, uh, that's Absalom, I mean, Absalom and Tamar are full brother and sister, and he loves Tamar. He takes Tamar into his house. He kind of consoles her and basically just says, look, just let bygones be bygones. Forget about it. But all the while, he's sort of stewing on it. And really, he's more or less biding his time until he can uh, make a move on Amnon and put him to death. And so he finds an occasion to do that where he arranges this, this sheep shearing party and brings all of his brothers to it, and uh, including Amnon. And in the midst of all of it, when Amnon is drunk, he has his servants kill Amnon. And so Amnon is dead, and David is notified that, that uh, at first all of his sons are dead, but then, that, but then he's notified by Jonadab, same Jonadab, that, uh, that it, no, it's just Amnon is dead. And here's the reason why it's happening. So, so David is really upset. And what follows tonight is all of the things that happened um, really in the years following that uh, altercation between Amnon and Absalom. And so what is David going to do about this? Because obviously he had the, he had the, the um, legal authority to put Amnon to death, and he didn't do it. And instead, it seemed in the passage last week that he was more or less keeping Amnon really close to him. Absalom had to ask David for permission for Amnon to go. Some of that was because Amnon is his firstborn son, meaning that he you know, has a lot of uh, birthright stuff. He takes a prominent position in the family. Uh, would have had, uh, would have been heir to the throne. We're not sure at what point Solomon comes along in all of this, but Solomon probably born earlier than that. David probably already knows that Solomon's going to have the throne according to the Lord's word. And so, uh, but, but it seems that David is keeping Amnon pretty close to himself. And Absalom asks for him, and with some hesitation, David lets Amnon go. And so David doesn't exercise the kind of justice that he should have and could have exercise on Amnon. Why we're not exactly told, but we just know that he doesn't. And so then Absalom kills Amnon. Now David has the right to go after Absalom and put him to death. So what is David going to do about all of this? And what's going to happen between him and Absalom? Well, that's the content of what's taken up at the very end of chapter 13. And really, for the vast majority of chapters 14 to 18, we're going to look at the end of 13 and the beginning of four or the, the most of 14 tonight. So um, David hears obviously that Amnon is dead and David falls into this inconsolable kind of anguish. And I want to read, we're actually going to read um, the end of chapter 13. And then I want to read uh, chapter 14 verses one all the way through 24, which is the biggest, that's the bulk of the text that we're going to look at tonight. And so I want to read all of that. That's in your verse packet. And I want to look at that, that entire passage. It's going to take a little while to read, but just bear with me. Uh, I want to get through all of it. And then let's go back through it and talk about some of the intricacies of this text. So here it is, 13, starting in verse 34. But Absalom fled. And the young man who kept the watch lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Many people were coming from the road behind him 
by the side of the mountain. And Jonadab said to the king, Behold, the king's sons have come, as your servant said, so it has come about. And as soon as he, as he had finished speaking, behold, the king's sons came and lifted up their voice and wept. And the king also and all his servants wept bitterly. But Absalom fled and went to Talmai, but the son of Amihud, king of Geshur. And David mourned for his son day after day. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there three years. And the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom because he was confronted about Amnon since he was dead. Now Joab, the son of Zeruiah, knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom. And Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning garments. Do not anoint yourself with oil, but behave like a woman who has been in mourning many days for the, de for the dead. Go to the king and speak thus to him. So Joab put the words in her mouth. When the woman of Tekoa came to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and paid homage and said, Save me, O king. And the king said to her, What's your trouble? She answered, Alas, I am a widow. My husband is dead, and your servant had two sons, and they quarreled with one another in the field. There was no one to separate them, and one struck the other and killed him. And now the whole clan has risen against your servant, and they say, Give up the man who struck his brother, that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed. And so they would destroy the heir also. Thus they would quench my coal that is left and leave to my husband neither name nor remnant on the face of the earth. Then the king said to the woman, go to your house and I will give orders concerning you. And the woman of Tekoa said to the king, on me be the guilt, my lord, the king, and on my father's house, let the king and his throne be guiltless. The king said, if anyone says anything to you, bring him to me and he shall never touch you again. Then she said, please let the king invoke the Lord your God, that the avenger of blood kill no more, and my son be not destroyed. He said, as the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. Then the woman said, please let your servant speak a word to my lord the king. He said, speak. And the woman said, why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in giving this decision, the king convicts himself inasmuch as the king does not bring his banished one home again. We must all die. We are like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. But God will not take away life, and he devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. Now I have come to say this to my lord, the king, because the people have made me afraid and your servant thought, I will speak to the king. It may be that the king will perform the request of his servant, for the king will hear and deliver his servant from the hand of the man who would destroy me and my son together from the heritage of God. And your servant thought, the word of my lord, the king, will see me at rest. 
For my Lord, the King, is like the angel of God to discern good and evil. The Lord, your God, be with you. Then the king answered the woman, Do not hide from me anything I ask you. And the woman said, Let my lord the king speak. The king said, Is the hand of Joab with you in all this? The woman answered and said, As surely as you live, my lord the king, one cannot turn to the right hand or to the left from anything that my lord the king has said. It was your servant Joab who commanded me. It was he who put all these words in the mouth of your servant in order to change the course of things. Your servant Joab did this, but my Lord has wisdom like the wisdom of the angel of God to know all the things that are on the earth. Then the king said to Joab, behold, now I grant this, go bring back the young man Absalom. And Joab fell on his face to the ground and paid homage and blessed the king. And Joab said, Today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, my lord the king, in that the king has granted the request of his servant. So Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, Let him dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. Okay. That's that's a long passage, but and and there's certainly some uh, well considerable amount of questions that should probably come up in the just the reading of it. One is uh, there's probably in your mind maybe there might be some confusion in the discussion of what's happening with this woman that comes to position David and what exactly is she doing and why is she doing that what is she saying? Uh, so we need to parse that. The other thing we have to think about tonight is why is Joab so keen on getting Absalom back? Um, spoiler alert, Joab's going to be the one to kill Absalom later. Absalom in the not too distant future is going to set Joab's field on fire. Um, it's not, when Absalom comes into Jerusalem to take David's throne eventually in subsequent chapters, Joab doesn't fall on Absalom's side. He he sides with David. So it does raise the question, Joab, what's your stake in all this? Why do, you, why do you want Absalom to come back? And why do you go through such lengths to do this? Why didn't you just go ask David and petition David? Um, but anyway, um, so there, there's that that we have to deal with too, is like, what is Joab's stake in all this? There is an underlying current through all of this that seems pretty evident uh, the further we go into 1 Kings, actually, that probably answers some of those questions here. The other third question I think that we need to tackle first is there's this idea of David, um, you know, being heartbroken over Absalom. And it says in 39, the spirit of the king, uh, that's 1339, the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom because he was uh, comforted about Amnon since he was dead. And then 14.1, Joab, the son uh, of Zeruiah, knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom. And so what, is, what does that mean? If David longs to be with Absalom so much, why doesn't he just go bring him back? Um, that doesn't seem to be what happens in the chapter. And David seems to be really mad at Absalom. And so 
it, there's that that we got to deal with too. So there's a few things to unpack and I want to draw your attention. If you've got the participant guide printed off at the top of the participant guide is a, a, a sort of a loose timeline. Uh, Eugene Merrill was the one to put this timeline together. And um, his book is one that I consult as we go through uh, first and second Samuel and the Kings. Um, one of, of several. This timeline is, there's other people that suggest a different timeline and put the Absalom saga at the tail end of David's life. Eugene Merrill thinks that it's probably in that, maybe that last half or maybe last third of David's uh, kingdom, which I think is a, probably as good a spot as any. But basically we've got, according to Merrill, the death of Amnon in 985 and exile of Absalom uh, up to 982, and then uh, he comes back to Jerusalem and there remains for, for a number of years, uh, six years actually, before he begins to have the altercation with David. And so um, it, regardless of where you see this, a lot of the Absalom story takes place towards the tail end of David's life, at least if, uh, if, if, in, if, the biblical text is any indication. And I think that's probably the way it's pointing. Um, now, so David immediately hears that Amnon is dead and he falls into this, uh, this deep anguish over, um, over Amnon's death and then over the way Absalom has, has responded. Uh, David is, uh, is distraught to one degree or another. And so Absalom takes off running. He leaves uh, Baal Hatzor, and um, or some people think he leaves Jerusalem, but either way, he leaves and he goes to Gesher, where his maternal grandfather lives. So he runs to granddaddy, basically, and um, seeks some sort of solace there with his maternal grandfather. You'll notice on the very back of your participation participant guide in the appendix there, I've just left David's um, you know, family tree that can get really, really confusing because he's got all these wives, but you can see that David is married to, or one of his wives is Makah, and her father is king of Gesher, is, is Talmai, and um, so Absalom goes running there because he feels like he will uh, have some sort of protection there from his grandfather. Grandfathers tend to do that to their grandsons, so I've heard. Um, but he, in, nevertheless, he runs to his maternal grandfather and, um, to just see a picture of that, to just get a lay of the land in your mind, there are a couple of important cities that are mentioned here, territories, if you will. There's Jerusalem down here in the South, which is where David is and, um, the main base of operations, but all Hatzor is where they went for the sheep shearing party and where, uh, Absalom, uh, leaves from, or maybe he goes back to Jerusalem and then leaves. I'm not sure, but either way, he takes off and he goes up here to Gesher, which is at the very top uh, and just to the east of the Sea of, what we know is the Sea of Galilee, uh, back then the Sea of Gennesaret, or now they call it the Lake Gennesaret, um, but it it's, goes by a ton of names, but we know it as the Sea of Galilee probably best. He goes to the land of Gesher, which is way up there, and more or less trying to get out of David's uh, line of sight, as it were, and stays out there for three years. Now, apparently, 
I think the best way to read and understand the text that's in front of us is that David did not have very much enthusiasm about Absalom's return from exile, and he cared less, even less, about having reconciliation with him. And I don't, I, the last thing that I want to do is bore you through all this, but there are sometimes in Hebrew, things can get really confusing because of the way words are translated. Because, you know, as it turns out, just like in English, a word can have a multitude of meanings and it can have different connotations and things like that. And sometimes it can mean, you know, the, the opposite. Uh, of, of what it means, or it, depending on the context. And sometimes the context isn't really obvious as to what is being meant uh, by the word. And so we have this um, in thir 1339, where in your Bible and in the ESV, it says, and the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon since Amnon was dead, since uh, he, he was over it, basically, or he's over Amnon. Um, or that's, that's at least the way that ESV reads it. Now, uh, and then in 14.1, it says, again, the king's heart went out, um, you know, uh, to, to Amnon. But probably what that... Uh, means or more likely means is that uh, David's heart had come to an end or had been used up against uh, Absalom. In other words, it would be kind of like saying that David had just had enough. It, it was like he was done with Absalom. Um, he, it seems like in the text that we just read last week that David was already maybe a little suspicious that Absalom might try something, which may have been the reason he was keeping Amnon close to himself. And so now Absalom has struck him dead. Uh, Amnon's gone, and he, he knows this. And um, since Amnon was dead, he had, um, he had just had enough with Absalom, and his uh, heart had been used up, basically. It was uh, out of emotion that he could actually have for Absalom. To him, it would be kind of like saying, uh, my son is dead to me, essentially. And so um, the expression to go out um, that's also used here, uh, let's see, um, uh, uh, in 39, uh, his, the, the spirit of the king longed or had been used up and uh, to go out. Uh, it can be used in a hostile sense, like marching out. He, his uh, heart was, you know, uh, had been used up and he wanted to go out against Absalom, but he didn't. Um, this kind of underscores the problem that we talked about last week, where David has the right to kill Absalom, but he doesn't. And I think Probably the best way to read this text is that David um, had, like, that the author is underscoring the fact that David didn't do what he should have done, that he was just exhausted with the whole situation and he didn't march out against Absalom. 
Um, now, the second part, the translation of 1339 um, should probably be understood as something more like this. The king's enthusiasm for marching out against Absalom was spent. That's probably the way it should, I think, be read. I think that's a better reading of it. And um, in 14.1, there, there's actually, so if you look at the, the verb, there's no act, there's, in Hebrew, there's no verb there that means long for. It, it's, it's absent uh, out of the text. And the English translators supply it there. So they, they kind of put it in to sort of clarify, but there is no, uh, there's no verb long for there. So the verse most likely says that Joab knew that the heart of the king was against Absalom, that it was, uh, that it, in other words, it remained hostile to him. So it's not that he, uh, um, he sit, the king's heart went out to Absalom, but the king's heart was against Absalom. There's just a small preposition there that could be translated went out to or like was for him. And then it could also mean was against him. Ironically, it can mean the exact opposite, just depending on the context. But the context here isn't totally clear. And so uh, you, you kind of have to figure out what makes best sense of the actions of the people within the story. And to me, what would not make sense is in reading it the way the ESV has it right here. If you read it that way, then, it, then uh, David's ignoring Absalom doesn't make a lot of sense to me. It also doesn't make sense why he doesn't just go get Absalom and why he has to be encouraged by Joab to go do that or really tricked by Joab to go do that. It seems more that David's spent and he really does uh, want to kill Joab and go out against him, but he, he doesn't. And the author is sort of underscoring the fact that, yeah, he should have, and he didn't. He sat, uh, he sat instead of going out against uh, Absalom. Now, I know that that either can totally bore you to tears and you don't care, or you might have questions about that. And if you do, that's fine. You can type them in the chat window. Uh, I'll answer those as best I can. Um, or you, um, you can open your mic and, and interrupt me too if you, if you need to. Um, I'm going to move on and I'll, I'll come back to it uh, if you have questions. Um, so he is more, probably against Absalom. So what does Joab do? Now, uh, after Absalom had been in Gesher for three years, Joab brings about this, what's called a wise woman of Tekoa. So this wise woman of Tekoa, you probably remember, I'll show you the map in just a second, but Tekoa was just to the south of Jerusalem. So he goes and gets this woman, uh, perhaps he knew her, perhaps she was a prophetess, who knows uh, much about her, but that she was some sort of a, a wise uh, soothsayer or a truth speaker, I suppose. Um, uh, and he wants to bring her in to uh, essentially uh, trick the king. Now, this happened before. You'll remember, but it was God sending Nathan the prophet to David and putting, uh, God put his own words in Nathan's mouth. Well, here, Joab is playing the divine role, which we're going to see is actually going to get him in trouble. But hit, go figure, right? But he's, 
playing sort of the role of God in this situation. He wants to have Absalom back in Jerusalem. And so he sends this woman into more or less trick David into doing what he wants. And yet again, David listens to the parable. And when David is removed from the situation, when, in other words, when it, when the situation doesn't concern David specifically and David's family, David seems to be a pretty wise guy and he seems to make really good decisions. But when he's in the middle of it and when he's on the hot seat, uh, he doesn't like it so much. And so he's removed from this situation and the woman presents to him a situation uh, that he needs to rule. And, um, and so he's got to make a decision. And so Joab hires this uh, woman who is, who plays the role at least of a bereaved widow. And she's claiming that her two sons in this parable that she presents to him, um, she presents it like it's a real story, but she presents this parable to him that she has two sons. They are warring against each other in a quarrel with one another and one killed the other. And so what happens in the normal course of events when someone kills another person, um, justly or unjustly, there is a contingency of people that will seek justice, uh, more or less kind of vigilante justice, and go after this person. And this is permissible in the law. They can do this. Um, and so the son is on the run from the Avengers of Blood. And, um, sorry, let me go back. Um, yeah, did we have the Avengers of Blood? Nope, uh, bereaved, uh, bereaved widow. Okay, um, so just as a reminder of where Tekoa is, down here south of Jerusalem is where she, she comes from. So very close to the city. Um, but in accordance with the law, the guilty son was being pursued by the avenger of blood. So they're coming after him, and they have the legal right, just like David does, to put to death uh, the son that has, uh, has killed the other son. Now, you probably will remember a story back in Genesis chapter 4, where something very similar to this happened, which is the story of Cain and Abel. And um, the one son strikes the other and kills him. Uh, Cain kills Abel. And what happens as a result? Cain goes before the Lord, and he is concerned that the avengers of blood will come after him. And what does God do in that situation? God protects Cain. And so in all likelihood, Joab knows that David has the divine authority, but sort of playing the role of God puts the words of Cain in the mouth of this woman to present to the godlike figure, David, to, so that he will make the same decision and so that he will see what he's actually got to do in this situation. Because remember, Joab wants Absalom back in Jerusalem. We still don't know why yet. We'll get to that in just a second. And so what does David do in this, in the scene? In, uh, in verse eight, he tells her in 14, eight, he tells her that he promises her that he won't allow her son to die. And so once David then renders the decision to this lady that, okay, uh, your son's not going to die. Just send him to me. I'll, I'll protect him and all will be well. She then reveals to David that this whole thing is an allegory of Absalom's history. And she sort of pulls the curtain back on the story 
because David has now condemned himself, she says, for what he has, what he has told her. He has told her he will do what he has been unwilling to do inside his own family. And so the, you know, the cloak, as it were, is pulled back. And what she says is that Israel is the widow of the story, that Israel is the one who, who stands to lose both sons here. And the two sons the two sons in the parable represent Amnon and Absalom. We've already lost one son. If we lose the second son, Israel will be left without heir. Do you understand the parable? What she's saying is that the, the, our, the king, your kingdom is dependent on one of these two sons. And now that Amnon is gone, the heir to the throne, Absalom, so she thinks, and so Joab thinks, is gone. And David, if you don't bring Absalom back and you don't protect Absalom, then what is to happen to your kingdom when you die? Now, what does the reader know? The reader knows something that the people inside the story, all except presumably David, doesn't know. And that is that Solomon is the heir to the throne. Now, okay, Solomon was picked up by some wife that David had an affair with. He killed her husband. Surely that can't be the heir to the throne. Uh, but then the question remains for the reader. Who's the one that chooses the heir to the throne? Is it the king? Or is it the king? Is it the capital K king? Or King David, the lowercase king David? Uh, well, the question is up in the air. And all of the people in the, in the narrative seem to think conventional wisdom should rule the day. Absalom is now the firstborn, quote unquote, because Amnon is dead, so shouldn't Absalom be the king? This is probably why uh, Joab is so keen to bring Absalom back. Now, I think uh, before I before I go further, let, let's let's fill in the next blanks and then let's talk more about Joab. Um, so, just as Nathan uh, with David convinced and conv uh, David was convinced and convicted by the parable. Um, uh, David calls Joab, he's convinced and convicted by the parable, and so he calls Joab to bring Absalom back home. Now, we have to stop for just a second, and let's think about what we know about Joab. Joab does not always make the best decisions. Um, he lashed out against the brothers that were pursuing him and, uh, and struck him dead. Um, he's done a couple of things. This scene right here is another instance where, uh, Joab can sometimes be both hot-headed, it may be ill-tempered, and he also, um, probably a little overzealous, may overstep his boundaries, uh, to some extent. But if we're painting a full portrait of Joab, we probably also have to consider that, um, that, 
he uh, that that he's zealous for the crown in that he is zealous to protect the crown. Joab is the one that goes into Jerusalem and runs out the party that's already there uh, and strikes them dead by, remember, climbing up the water shaft uh, and leading his men to do that. Joab has been with David since near the beginning. And um, Joab, Joab, it seems, is zealous to protect David and if we're building a full picture, sure, he oversteps his boundaries sometimes, but he's also really wanting the kingdom of David to succeed. And sometimes it seems that Joab might feel that David needs to get out of his own way. And he's kind of that, that sort of guy and may think he knows better. And his perhaps overzealous nature, he's probably seen David make some grievous mistakes. Um, and and has is probably thinking David's making a mistake now and wants to convince him of that. He may have even been privy to what Nathan did uh, to David and thinks maybe I could pull it over his eyes a second time and help him see. Maybe that's the only way he can see is by removing himself from the situation. So if we're painting a full picture and being fair to Joab, does he do some terrible things? Yes. In this case, it's going to get in, get all of them into a into a lot of trouble. But to be fair to him, he's, he probably also really cares about protecting the crown, uh, protecting David's crown. Obviously, David doesn't think that Joab is, is such a bad guy. Uh, he continues to keep him around, even in spite of his mistakes. Millie asks, when did they know Solomon was to be king? Again, this was a, similar to the questions we got with David. It's not, it's not always abundantly clear as to how much the Lord makes known to David how much David then makes known to the people that are around him um, and how much uh, is, is really known to them. We're going to see later on in 1 Kings, which we're going to talk about in just a second, where um, Adonijah tries to take the throne and a lot, some people side with Adonijah. So if they did know, if David told them, hey, Solomon is going to be king and told them all broadly, they ignored him and thought he was a crazy person. And so that's a possibility even right now that David has already told Joab, maybe even has told several people around him in his council uh, that, uh, that, that Solomon is going to be king. And, um, and they ignored that, perhaps thought he was crazy. Um, it's also possible that David played that really close to the, to the vest and didn't tell anybody just yet. And, uh, and they're going to have to see it play out for themselves. What we do know, Mike, about next, what's that? Go ahead. My, I'm sorry, Michael. What what I'm kind of confused about here is Solomon built the tabernacle. Yeah, the temple mm -hmm. for the ark, right? Yep. He so built the, that was, Solomon built the temple for the for both the okay, ark and the worship. Right. Yeah, yeah. David right. was the one that right. built a, a shed of of sorts for the for the the um the ark of the covenant if that's what you're asking okay do we know when the temple was built yes um six uh sorry nine nine sixty seven so if you look back at the okay. timeline david's gonna die in 971 solomon will build the temple in 967 slash 966 so right there right about Got it. there yep um so uh 
Yeah, so Solomon, you have to at this point, regardless of where, regardless of we're at the very tail end of David's kingdom, or at the uh, it, like the last third of David's kingdom, um, Solomon is young. There's no question. Solomon is young. Uh, Merrill dates the uh, estimates probably sometime in the nine nine in the nine uh, nineties would have been where David and Bathsheba had their their deal where. Uh, Solomon came out of that. Um, so Solomon, maybe 20, when uh, he takes the throne, which would have put him as, at very young, and Absalom would have been considerably older than that. So, um, you know, that's also a, a big concern, is, uh, is Solomon's really young. So more or less, we don't, we're not always told exactly how the revelation spreads across the people, which is you know, we, we want more information than that, but we're just not giving it, uh, more, more or less. And there'll be points where people are made aware that Solomon is, has the throne, and, and then we're going to invariably see a battle for the throne, whoever get, who gets the throne, uh, especially when a younger kid is appointed as, at, at the, as the throne, which is the case here. Now, so we have to ask that question then, why is it that Joab goes to such great lengths to bring Absalom back to Jerusalem. We know that Joab was not loyal to Absalom. When Absalom comes in to take over Jerusalem, Joab goes with David. So it's not as though Joab has this incredible loyalty to Absalom. And, um, and so it, it raises the question, what's Joab's motivation for bringing Absalom back? Um, it, it, we're not told in the text, but there are some indications that uh, uh, at least maybe shade or color or give us an idea of probably what's happening here. Uh, and some good, some good indications I've already hinted at already. But, but first, these events obviously likely take place later on in David's reign. And um, we know... Um, there, there's a high likelihood that if that's the case, Joab is probably beginning to think that David as king is growing weaker, um, that he's not as, uh, maybe you might say, strong or willing to do the hard things that he should be perhaps doing. We've already, I've already said that I think Joab is, a, is, a, is really zealous to protect the crown more than anything, and wants to see David's kingdom, the kingdom of God, succeed on after. Um, but so if that's the case, then it's probably that David is, is growing, and David obviously isn't going after Absalom. He didn't punish Amnon like he should have, and he's not going after Absalom. And, uh, and so uh, Joab probably sees that as kind of a, a, a bit of a weak spot in David's reign, wherever you put this. And, um, and so uh, Amnon, who is the eldest, is obviously dead. And so Absalom, the, who was apparently next in line, was in exile. And Joab, more than anything, doesn't want to see the kingdom fall apart. Um, now, there's the, the second part of this, which has a good, or at least a decent bit of of support from the Bible that there probably was a lot of people who were not super keen 
on Solomon taking the throne. And so one reason that's probably why Joab brings Absalom back is that he wa he wants to prevent Solomon from becoming king. Um, we certainly know this, and, and this would mean that perhaps Joab may already know Solomon is the heir apparent. Um, we don't know that he knows that, but he may. And if he does, then bringing Absalom back may be his way of preventing Solomon for, from becoming king. What we do know is that in the biblical text, he actually does take a step to prevent Solomon from becoming king a little bit later. Um, Joab uh, certainly hoped that Absalom would become the king, and if not, Adonijah would become the king. He had a way of undermining, uh, that blank is undermining Solomon, but he's going to later in the book of First Kings support Adonijah's succession to uh, take over the throne. So after David dies, there's going to be a battle between uh, Adonijah, which is the third son, because spoiler alert, Absalom's going to be killed and Joab's actually going to do it. Um, but the third son in the line is Adonijah and Joab in 1 Kings 5, uh, 1, 1, 5 to 10 is going to support Adonijah's succession. So let's look at that in your verse packet. He says, now Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself saying, I will be king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen, 50 men to run before him. His father had never at any time, uh, uh, his father had never at any time displeased him by asking, why have you done thus and so? He was also a very handsome man and he was born next after Absalom. He conferred with Joab, the son of Zeruiah, there's Joab again, and Abiathar, the, the priest, and they followed Adonijah and helped him. So here at the, in 1 Kings, we see already that Joab is keen on Adonijah's succession of David and not Solomon's. Um, now, obviously, there's the question, did, did he know that Solomon was next in line or not? Who, we don't know the answer to that question. But what is clear is that Joab, if he saw Adonijah as having a right to the throne, he certainly saw Absalom while he was alive as having a right to the throne. So Joab, it seems, is, is, is bent on protecting the crown. And here's the rub of it. Joab thinks he has to protect the crown. He doesn't have to protect the crown. Who is protecting the crown in all of this? Well, it's clearly that God is protecting the crown. Uh, God is the one that made the promise to David. You'll remember all the way back in chapter 7. He made the promise that he was going to sustain David's line throughout it all. And Joab now is in the position where he thinks he's got to protect the crown. and. I would say that estimate fits pretty well with what we know of Joab so far. And it makes a lot of things in the text begin to make sense. David is mad at Absalom, doesn't really want to have anything to do with him. David already knows that 
if the text is any indication that's if the order of the text is any indication that Solomon is going to become king, he's not concerned about Absalom taking the throne or being, uh, you know, taking over as king after he dies. He knows Solomon's going to do that. And so he's done with, with Absalom. And yet Joab is concerned, thinks he has to protect the king. And so although Joab's intentions may have been to preserve the strength of the kingdom in Absalom's return. It's actually his disregard for God's word that God is going to be the one to protect the throne that leads to the further weakening of the kingdom. It gets everyone in trouble. Why? Because as we'll see next week, Absalom is going to come into town and he's going to garner a lot of strength and attention. And we're going to see a lot of parallels between Absalom and Saul, King Saul, as uh, as they begin to, as Absalom begins to garner enough strength from the people around that he can mount an attack against David, and just like Saul, send David on the run. Um, so I'm gonna, with that, I'm gonna stop the screen share and open it up for questions if you've got any. Hopefully, I can answer them. Clear as mud? Um, yeah, clear <laughs> as mud. Um, the, the choice of wording that we talked, that you talked about earlier. Um, so are we saying our Bibles were written wrong? I mean. No, it's, it, this is, it's all, every time they come to a, a passage, some passages are abundantly clear, but every translator is going to have to make a decision about how that word should be translated. And they're gonna have to do that based on the context. And, you know, if somebody said David's heart was compassionate toward Absalom and he longed to be with Absalom and, you know, comfort him, I'm fine with that. Uh, There's, it doesn't change the doctrine of the text in any way. Um, but what we have to recognize is that there's multiple ways this can be translated. And I would never suggest an alternative translation if other people hadn't suggested also an alternate translation. I don't trust my Hebrew skills near enough, uh, to make that kind of suggestion. Um, so, but enough people do make that suggestion that, uh, it makes more sense of the following passage if we translate the same words with just a different, uh, what's called a lex, but different um, word that's possible to be translated. The word that was written in Hebrew is not wrong. Um, so the, the author is not wrong. It's us that lacks the understanding that's making an effort to try to wrestle with the words and put them in the right order and, and sort them all out. So I think that's the difference. If we were to say the Bible is wrong, that would be to say, this is the way this has to be translated. We know, and the author didn't give us that permission to do so. And that would be saying, well, the author is wrong, but we're not really, we're saying we lack the understanding. And and I think this is a better way to understand the text than this way is to understand the text. So does that make sense? It's us. We put ourselves as the one in the problem. Yeah. 
Can you add some clarity to your appendix A? I, I, I'm having a hard time. Yeah, because uh, it's super confusing. <laughs> Turns out when you marry multiple do... women, it's... <laughs> yeah, well, I, I mean, you've got these... I mean, can, is, can you number them? Like David <laughs> married this person first and second right. and third? So um, you have... So here's David. Uh, the double lines are all of the, and the, the in, with the red people on the same plane as David are all the women he married that we, we know he married. Um, you'll see out here to but the right. Are they in order? Uh, yes, I think they are in order, if I remember right. They're not in order, Blake, you remember? No, because you have Michael, Michael is right beside him and she would be the first one, right? Well, she was then taken away and then given back to him. And she married somebody else. She was taken away from him and married somebody else. And then she was given back to him fourth. And so I think that's why they have this. I didn't draw this up. I, I got this from another resource, but I think that's why they have her there uh, is because that's her, her most recent marriage. I think this is, if I remember right in order, or it's very, very close to order. So you'll notice the kids are pretty well in order. You have Absalom over there uh, and Amnon. Uh, he had a child, uh, Amnon with Ahinoam first and then uh, Absalom with Makkah. So the way this reads is if you took Makkah, let's say on the far left, and you blocked out Ahinoam, Abigail, and Michael, that would be Makkah's relationship to David. Look straight between the double lines where Makkah is uh, going to the right, drop down, you have Absalom and Tamar, brother and sister, children of David and Makkah. Okay. Then you have Ahinoam and David have Amnon. You see that? Yeah. Okay. And then uh, David and Abigail have Kiliab. Uh, David and Michael have no children. Remember, she made fun of David because he danced and it's, the text said she was barren. Um, then David has a whole bunch of children attributed to him that, uh, are, are, we don't know who they came from. They weren't attributed to another woman. And so they're straight down from, from David here. Um, so who, who, who's the crowd way over there to the right and above him? Uh, another group of people that are David's brothers and, uh, Come, they come from Jesse. So you've got Jesse and you have David. And then over there on the right, all David's brothers that we know of. Okay. Um, so then on the right side of David are, are other wives. They just put David in the middle and all the other wives. Uh, it's super difficult when you marry multiple women to form a family tree <laughs> that, may, that makes coherent sense. But um, I put this on there just so that you could see, I left it on there, first of all, for last time, so you could see um, Absalom and Tamar's relationship and Amnon's relationship to Tamar. And then this time, so you could see Absalom's relationship to Talmai, who is directly above Makkah. Got it. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Now, related to that, uh, what's Jonathan over there to the right of Jesse? Isn't he Saul's son? Yeah. Uh, David uh, kind of took him on as a brother, and I think that's what they're trying to indicate there is David's uh, brother, brotherhood with Jonathan. 
uh, really confusing because you have a lot of there's there's like kingly lineage here, right? The the son of the king should be the firstborn son of the king should be next in line, which would be Jonathan for Saul. David took that place, so that kind of puts David in the family of Saul, and so there's some connection there to Saul's family as well. And I think that's what they're trying to indicate by the the uh, chart, at least, is that there's some adopted lineage there as well. Okay. And then Joab would come from David's sister. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, because they're cousins, right? Yeah. Or uncle, nephew, whatever it is. Anyway, yes, he gets <laughs> family trees. Who's Joab's mom? Do what? Who's Joab's mom? Um, Zeruiah. Yeah, where, where are you seeing that on the thing? I'm not seeing on that thing. I oh. was looking in the back. I can't remember. Isn't that, that like, to be over on the far right, that group of people that were David's brothers and sisters? Uh, yes. Those, those are people from Jesse. So one of those is Joab's mom. Is that what you're saying? I think that's right. If I remember right. Okay. Joab and David are related somehow. And I, and I, yeah. First, first Samuel 26, six. What does it say? Read it out loud. Uh, that then answered David and said to Elimelech the Hittite and to Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, brother to Joab. So, so yeah. yes, basically Joab was the son, was the, Son of um, Zeruai, who is the David of David, and you see Zeruai there, the last one. A brother, yeah. Zeruai is that a man or male or female? Male. Okay, all right. Two siblings are in red. What is that? Say again. Two of David's siblings are in red. That's sisters. Oh Probably. yeah, sisters. Oh, that may be. Yeah, Zura may may be a sister then. I guess. I yeah, it, Zura is sister. I mean, there's virtually nothing about her. So. Yeah, how you like that? Can you imagine doing Ancestry.com? <laughs> <laughs> well, let's see. <laughs> trying to do the census later yeah <laughs> this, this sounds like me and emily's conversations about my my granny's side of the family where there's like <laughs> 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 Emily's like, now what cousin is this wait this yeah. cousin had this baby last month and the yeah. other cousin having this baby in six months <laughs> yeah yeah and you're like wait a minute aren't they related well wait i Look, just stop asking questions. <laughs> it's like, wait a minute, they're cousins. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just like, oh, that's my other uncle. You don't, you don't, need, you'll never see him. Yeah, it's like you know, your family tree doesn't fork. You know, you're like, that's, that's, something's wrong there. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, some of this, some of the family tree stuff gets confusing and is hard to wrap your mind around for sure and it's certainly near impossible to remember that's i mean good grief i have so much trouble remembering all this stuff so uh, i had i had no clue did not know that 
um, his affair with Bathsheba was after all these wives. I don't know why I assumed he was single, <laughs> but he, uh, that she was one of the, she was the last wife almost. Yeah. Yep. Uh, and had a number of children by way of Bathsheba. Most people think that Solomon was the fourth kid from Bathsheba instead of the next kid from Bathsheba. It's weird because he's listed two different ways. Once in Chronicles, he's listed at the end, and then once in Samuel, he's listed there at the beginning. And so it's difficult to understand. In the Samuel text, he comes right after, or he's, it basically just says, they had a child, he died, and we know that story, and then Solomon was born. And the chronicler see, says that, they had several other kids and list Solomon last, which gives you the indication that Solomon was actually the fourth born and the person in Samuel just skipped over all that because it didn't matter to the narrative and just gave you Solomon's birth. And so, because he was the, he was the heir. And so a lot of people think that he was fourth born from her. Either way, it can be difficult to parse all these people. So Anyway, if there are no more questions, I want to close this in prayer and then we'll get out of here. Heavenly Father, we thank you for a time to study your word and to look deeply into these things. I'm grateful for uh, questions and inquisition. And, and I pray that as we discover these answers and as we make suggestions and that perhaps we're not being too presumptuous on the biblical text or anything like that, but that we're really just seeking to understand and know and make sense of the text that's in front of us. We know this is your word. We know it is authoritative and infallible and errant, and we trust it. Uh, we know that it reproves us, that it corrects us, that it guides us in righteousness, and we pray that it would have that effect on us now uh, as we go and as we think on these things. We pray that as we have opportunities um, to take matters into our own hands instead of waiting and trusting in you, that uh, we would instead opt to wait and trust and that when you make promises, we would trust in your promises rather than worry. Um, and so we pray that we would learn from Joab even to trust in your word and know that it is true, that it is good, and it's for our good and for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, guys. See y'all next week. Bye. Bye. Hey, Lily. Hi, Lily. Hi, y'all.